From the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio, this is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yarashevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. Welcome to Season 3 of our podcast. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. We are joined today by Joshua Thomas, Vice President of External Affairs at the Philly Pops. He joined the Philly Pops in 2019 as their Senior Manager of Development, after previously working in administrative roles at the Chamber Orchestra of Philadelphia and the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul. He is also active with the League of American Orchestras and served as a consultant and mentor for the Tessitura Network's Early Career Development Program. He is a graduate of Temple University, where he studied voice with a concentration in opera. Joshua Thomas, welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, we're so glad to have you here with us today. Um, this is the first time we get to meet you. So if you wouldn't mind introducing yourselves to us, since we don't know you very well, and also everybody listening. Absolutely. As the lovely intro said, what a nice brief intro. Do you ever hear someone's intro and you're like, okay, we get it. You've done things. That was the perfect amount of an intro. So good for you. Great job. Thank you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Joshua Thomas, Vice President of External Affairs at the Philly Pops, like you said. Um, and uh, today is another day. It's been such a strange last 18 months, hasn't it? Or I guess almost two years now we're, yeah. we're creeping up on. And so the pops is slowly but surely sort of etching out um, of, you know, this, this tragedy for so many. And I think on the other side of it, we'll be better for it. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly been difficult for us going through it. And um I say all this to say one of the big changes that we made, we did a big reorg. Mm. And so now we have four vice presidents, which we never had before. Um, so now there are four vice presidents who are sort of been like charged with fixing all of the wrongs and moving into the future. So um, my day, my days have become a whole lot different than they were um, during the pandemic and even pre-pandemic. Wow. And um, and some days it's great and some days it's not, to be quite honest. But um, every day is, every day I leave with key learnings. That's what I call them, Amazing. key learnings. Um, so yeah, I think that says a little bit about me. Yeah. What have you been, what got you to where you are now? How, how did you find your way to the Philly Pops in your journey from opera at one point now to here? Um, it's a, what, what got you there? So when I was in high school actually middle school I did my first musical in middle school it was Beauty and the Beast and I was the Beast and what a time to be alive um, <laughs> but, but I grew up actually um sort of in two places I was born and sort of partially raised in Newark New Jersey um, just outside of New York City 
And then my family moved to Williamsport, Pennsylvania, which is where Deshaun Burton is from. Yeah. Who you have also interviewed on the podcast. Yeah. And, and it's I have also never met. where the Little never League met. World Series takes place. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> For one week out of the year, Williamsport is on the map. Uh, and then everybody goes away. Uh, <laughs> but um, Deshaun and I have never met, uh, but obviously we know a lot of people mutually. And... Um, Williamsport was such a great place to grow up and has such a great musical and artistic community. And my very first voice teacher, um, her one of her requirements was that each of her students learn one piece of classical music. And um, I did, and I loved it. I really fell in love with it. And um, I always thought in college, while sort of growing up, that I would be an anesthesiologist. Um, very different. And then, I know, right? <laughs> completely different. And then one day, it was the summer before my senior year, I remember thinking to myself, you don't know anything about that. <laughs> like, I liked, I, I knew something about it. Like, I liked the idea of it. I knew what they did. Um, I understood what their role was sort of in the medical community. But like, I had not been working toward that. Mm. And so I decided, I spent all this time performing and I was spending money on voice lessons. I was like, you should just go to school for music. And so I went to my voice teacher and I told her and she said, um, I wasn't going to push you to it. I don't push anybody to it. And then she started to help me prepare. And, um, you know, during this voice lesson and I got home and then I thought to myself, you don't know anything about opera. What are you doing? <laughs> so here's how I learned, because it's always been important to me um, to not go into anything blind. Mm -hmm. I don't really like that. I don't like surprises. I don't like it. So I went home and I went onto the websites of every major opera house in the country. And I looked at what their season was and I read about that opera and I listened to the highlights. And then I would read who are the key players in the opera and who are the people who have sung these roles notably. So for example, Aida, we know that the great Leontine Price saying Aida, who knows how many times. So I learned a whole lot about Leontine Price and I just went from there. So when I got to college, I wasn't like, I don't know what an opera is. I like <laughs> knew a little bit of stuff. Yeah. Um, and about halfway through school, I figured out, I don't really want this life for myself. I didn't want the life of a performer. Mm. And I got really involved in um, NATS, the National Association of Teachers of Singing. The greater philadelphia chapter was revitalized and i had the opportunity to do some administrative work for them putting together competitions and master classes and i would always interview um you know ask a couple questions of the people we were bringing in because you know singers ask things like when did you get your high notes when did you get your low notes what rep are you working on and i was like what's the thing about being a singer that nobody ever told you that you wish you knew mm. Um, and I felt like the answers that they were giving me were so much more clarifying than anything I could have found on my own. Mm. Um, and I really appreciated that. And I remember my teacher, um, Dr. Lawrence Indick, I love him so much. He said to me one day, Josh, I think you could have such a huge career in arts administration. And it took me maybe like a month to realize that wasn't his way of saying, dude, you suck. You are not going to be a singer. He was saying to me, you're good at this, but you'd be so much better at that. And I so appreciate that. I tell this story all the time because it was such like a light bulb moment for me. Um, 
because it's not that often that you have people in your life who give you sort of constructive criticism um, or feedback that has a solution in it, right? Like think about how often someone has like given you feedback about something and you're like, that's really helpful, but they didn't tell you how to fix it or what you could do to be better. And he did. And so I try to do that now if I'm ever giving somebody some feedback. So to make a long story short, I started working at the chamber orchestra um, because I was working in a restaurant and I just have to tell this story. I was working in this Greek restaurant and there was a, a, a Greek man named Saki and he worked there. He was very short. That's why I'm putting my hand like this. And um, one day the executive director and the conductor of the chamber orchestra came into this restaurant after a show. And Saki knew what I wanted to do. And he would always say to me, you're too smart to get stuck here. He said, go up to them, tell them who you are and what you want to do. And I said, they are having a nice meal. No. <laughs> and he pulled me over to them and he said, this is Josh. He's brilliant. You should hire him. If I was white, I would have been red. I was so embarrassed <laughs> by what he had done in that moment, but it changed my life because they said to me, send us your resume. Everybody that we hire is a musician. And I did. And I started working there as the donor and patron relations manager. And I was really doing a little bit of a lot. Like I did everything. It was a very small nonprofit, um, but they made incredible music. And I learned 10,000 things there. And um, sometimes I do miss working in classical music, though I do like working in the pop space. Um, you know, I study classical music, so I have a real love for it. Mm. Um, and then one day I was introduced to my boss, our current chief operating officer, Karen Corbin, and we really hit it off. Then she brought me on to the Pops. I started as the senior manager of development, then I was promoted to director. And then uh, in just August, I was promoted to vice president of external affairs. You've told us a little bit about how you got to where you are now. And it sounds like you've worked in the realm of development for your entire arts administration career. What drew you to development and what do you like about working in development? Um, it was the job that the Chamber Orchestra had open. <laughs> Good answer. Um, um, so I had already known that like fundraising existed. Um, so it wasn't new to me, uh, but I had obviously never worked in fundraising. And it was, like I said, the job that they had open. And my first job at COP. Um, well, I guess my first job really in the arts, I was doing a lot of sort of patron engagement work. So I was in charge of if somebody called and wanted to renew their subscription, that was me. And then I would renew their gift at the same time. So I had this really great opportunity to see where um, earned revenue and contributed revenue met um, and, uh, and how the patron thought about that, how they thought about um, their subscription dollars versus their fundraising dollars or their contributed dollars. And that was really interesting to me. And then when I came to the Pops, um, you know, obviously the Chamber Orchestra had a, a wonderful uh, contributed revenue program and the Pops uh, had a very strong program, but they knew that there were holes in it and that they wanted to better them. They wanted to work on them. Um, you know, people say uh, leaving money on the table. A lot of that happened in sort of really a lot of areas, but in foundation work. And so I was lucky to get to come here and sink my teeth 
into that. But um, to anybody who wants to work in fundraising, good luck. Uh, because it can be a little draining, um, I would say, because you have to sort of be on all the time. You're always listening and processing information. Um, and there's a lot of messaging involved in a way that um, you may not expect. So going into that a little bit, um, some people, those who aren't in the arts management world, hear the word development and they they don't know really what it means. And you did a great description of there's fundraising, but then it's also patron development and all this other stuff. What are some mm -hmm. things about development for those who have no idea what it is that you tell them to kind of explain what development is to people and how to kind of wrap their mind around the whole package that is a development department or, or person at a, at an organization? Uh, absolutely. Great question. I would say, you know, one of the things to look out for are trends in our industry. And one of them is you're starting to see the word development disappear, right? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you see philanthropy, you might see advancement, or, you know, in my case, you might see external affairs. You know, you see all these, you know, there are a lot of words being thrown around. And one of the things I don't like about the word development is people already um, have an idea of what you do. They know that you're going to ask them for something, likely money. And so there's already sort of like, mm, I don't know that I want to talk to you because you're going to ask me for something. Um, so really development is the raising or the securing of um, funds, whether they be in kind, um, you know, actual dollars and cents, um, sometimes it's services. I guess I would say the betterment of an organization. Um, there is no orchestra uh, in the country who can sustain themselves purely on earned revenue. The other piece comes from contributed revenue, grants, sponsorships, um, individual giving, bequests, um, willed gifts. It goes on and on and on. There are so many ways to give money. People give property, people give cars, people give all these different things that are ultimately to secure the future of the organization. Um, and so if I had to synthesize what development is, it's fundraising for the arts. I have a small kind of fun follow-up question to that. I, I, I like to, I, I've asked several de de people in the development world this, of what's the craziest gift that they've gotten? Whether it be like, I know some development people at the Cleveland Orchestra, they got given like an old mansion. Like it got gifted to the Cleveland Orchestra and they're like, what do we do with this house? And the whole process that they went through with that. So is there any like funny or crazy thing that has been gifted to the organization you work for? Recently, someone reached out to us and they wanted to give us some, mu some music they had. It was uh, about eight boxes of sheet music and scores. And now there is a part of our office that is high with just music. Um, and do we appreciate it? Absolutely. But like no one has had the time to go these eight boxes of music. And we thought, oh, it'll just be like a few things. You know, somebody collected some music over the years. No, it's their entire library. Like it could feel, fill like four bookcases. And we were so surprised because we were like, Oh, but it was just like box after box after box. Now, do I want somebody to give us a mansion? Absolutely. Bring it <laughs> on. Uh, but that has not happened to me yet. Oh Hopefully gosh. someday. Our podcast, of course, where we look at 
diversity, equity, and inclusion issues in the world of classical music mm -hmm. and, and orchestral music. And uh, we see, of course, a lack of diversity at all levels, which is what inspired us to start these having these conversations. And this, of course, includes donors. So as someone who works interfaces directly with donors, what do you believe are some strategies that orchestras can use to increase diversity at the individual donor level? You know, when, when someone opens their pocketbook or their wallet to make a contribution to your organization, whether it's a house or a hundred dollars, they at some point saw something of themselves in your organization. Whether that uh, is they saw someone who looked like them on stage, um, or they know of someone in the administration or on the board who looks like them, or you played some music that is very near and dear to them, or you mounted a show, whatever. They gave you the money because something resonated with them. And I think the biggest key to energizing the diversity in a donor base comes from having whatever population you're thinking of reflected in your programming, in your administration, and on your board. Mm -hmm. That is really the linchpin there. And it isn't that people of color or people of marginalized groups don't support organizations with their wallets. They do. They do. They support the ones that they feel are doing work that has or at one point would have benefited them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think the key for all of us orchestras to do this is to do a better job of having diversity across our organizations. We already know this, right? Yeah. I'm sure that everybody who's come onto the podcast has said something similar. But it's, a, it's about more than, um, oh, well, we hired uh, an Asian guest artist. Or, oh, we have, um, we have one member of staff who is um, Latinx. It's about more than that right? You know, it, it has to permeate all parts of the organization. That's true diversity. And that is how you create a real case for support. Yeah. I think some people are doing a better job than others. Will people get there? Yes. Some people will, and some people won't. And we'll see what happens to those organizations in the future. And it, it reminds me somewhat of going to music school, you know, the industry, the classical music industry, you know, the singers and the instrumentalists, and I guess also, you know, conductors too, we know that there are people of those groups who are of marginalized groups, right? Like we've seen Black conductors, we've seen Latin opera singers, we've seen female conductors, Asian conductors, like we've seen, just to name a few groups, there's so many more, but we've seen that. And so that is why there are people who look like those groups going to music school still, because they see people who look like them going to music school. Now, on the other side of the coin, are those people getting jobs? 
are those people on the stages? Are those people in the administrations? Not as much as they should be. Mm. And so that's sort of where the disconnect is. You know, the people are coming through the system, but they aren't finding the success on the other side of the education system as we would like for them to. So it's sort of a systemic problem, wouldn't you say? Um, and I think our, you know, we have the League of American Orchestras who are doing wonderful work on this very topic. You know, I love the work that the League is doing. They've been doing it for so long, so, so, so long. Um, and I, like I said, we'll get there. I think it'll take some time. Um, you know, we're gonna bump, a, they're gonna do a lot of sharp elbows um, people are going to be stuck in the ribs a few times, but I, I think we'll get there. It's yeah. a work in progress. From this perspective, how is the Philly Pops doing with all of this? Do you see diversity at all levels at the Philly Pops? We do. We we absolutely we have. Um, you know, we're a work in progress in some places more than others, but. Um, We've always done a great job with diversity in our guest artists. And now we're working to have diversity on our stage, um, you know, in the orchestra, because, you know, Philadelphia is a majority minority city. And the music that the pops plays specifically is rooted in the black tradition. We play jazz music, we play, we play swing, we play pop music, we play rock music. That music was birthed out of the traditions of people who look like me. So we should have people who look like me seated in the orchestra. We need to have them in more places than just walking onto the stage as a guest artist who's with us for three nights and then they're gone onto the next gig. Mm. You know, that isn't true diversity. Yeah. People should be able to look in the orchestra, whether we're playing Aretha Franklin or Frank Sinatra or the Beatles or Phil Collins and still see people of color. Um, and so we're getting there. Uh, we have an EDI task force um, that is chaired by Terrell Stafford, who is the Chair of Jazz Studies and the Chair of Instrumental Studies at my alma mater, Temple University. Terrell is wonderful. And uh, the task force is small, but it's very, very mighty, really, really mighty. And I am the staff liaison to that task force. Um, and so the task force uh, presented its initial findings in July of last year. And one of those, um, one of the things that it brought to the you know, to the entire organization was a list of 80 qualified musicians of color who could be added at any point to the Pops Orchestra. And so we've been slowly but surely working through that list, getting these musicians into our ensembles and employing them because we believe that it is important to have that diversity in our ensembles and our orchestra. Um, and so the Pop staff is, uh, you know, it was very diverse. Um, pre-pandemic and we lost a ton of people you know through attrition people moved on those sorts of things and we're working in real time um, to bring that back because it's important to us um, that we look like our city because um, we are the Philly Pops you know like we want to look like what's walking down the street that's really really important to us and um, I couldn't be more proud um, sometimes to see that the work that we're doing, because it, it really feels like uh, steps in the right direction, but it's certainly a work in progress as it is for so many organizations, because like I was saying earlier, there are existing structures in place and we are simultaneously trying to improve the structures, but dismantle the old ones that we know now no longer work. 
Um, and that's hard. That can be really hard sometimes. Yeah. So I've got a follow up question about the musicians. Yeah, specifically, that's, very, that's so cool. Right. Because because yeah. we we've had this conversation with with people from a variety of orchestras and our perspective is we really want to increase the diversity on our stage as far as who plays in the orchestra. But right now we are, of course, a union orchestra and all auditions take place behind a screen. So we don't know until the final round, which is only a few people, what our candidates look like. What is your process at the Philly Pops for hiring new musicians? And yeah. was there at any point a change in the collective bargaining agreement if you're a union orchestra to allow this to happen? Yeah, that's so cool um, that they had that whole list. Yeah. That's so cool. We um, have not made any changes to our CBA. Um, and, you know, as I said, all of that is a work in progress. Yeah. And you know how those negotiations can go. But what we have been doing is um, adding them as substitutes. So if there's somebody who cannot play, ah, we okay. use this list to bring these musicians into the orchestra. One of my favorite things that we're doing is we're working with the Sphinx organization. Um, we are an orchestral partner. We did send musicians to the Sphinx Orchestral Partners auditions to hear some uh, violinists. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be having uh, one violinist from the Sphinx Orchestral Partners auditions in almost every show that we do this season. Um, and then uh, one lucky musician sort of gets the lot, as they say. Um, and he was sort of the top scorer of all the wonderful string players that we heard. But he's going to play our entire Christmas run. Um, which this year is nine shows wow. across three weeks. So he's going to be in Philadelphia for a really long time. Oh. And we're excited to give him this wonderful opportunity to play with our professional group. He's already a professional, yeah. but he's going to get to do something that he may not get to do all the time. And it's incredibly exciting. And so we hope in, you know, in the next months when the orchestral partner auditions return to send other musicians from our orchestra to hear other instruments. Yeah because this is a wonderful opportunity to give these very talented talented Black and Latinx musicians um, experience in professional orchestras if they do not have them. It's, as I, you know, as I already said, it's imperative um, to the future success of our organization that we have diversity everywhere. It's tough. Yeah. I think you all know how, how tough it can be, um, but we're getting there. And it's a wonderful list. And the way that it happened was all of the members of the task force submitted names of musicians who they thought would be right um, for what we do here at the Pops. And so they are the task force is always aware if we're hiring these people, um, many of whom they've worked with for years and years and years. And uh, so they're, they're very clued in to what's happening. And, you know, we have the list with their contact information and we just write, we say, hey, do you want to come play with the Pops? And oftentimes they're like, absolutely. And so we get them and it's, it's wonderful because many of them are like, I've always wanted to play with you all. Thank you for this opportunity. And that's really special for us. That is, uh, that's really cool. I hadn't, the, the sub list, that's such a. The sub list auditions here are not behind a screen. Yeah. Sadly, even, so, even so there has not been a lot of diversity coming through the door yeah, we've got to, for the sublist auditions. And so for we've got to for send us, out invites. Exactly. We've got to exactly. directly contact people and ask them to come. All right, cool. New idea. We've written it down. Um, <laughs> but I kind of have a, a kind of looking at development a little bit. I mean, it's months, what it's been, year and uh, almost two years of COVID and 
all this diversity, equity, inclusion that, you know, rebubbled to the surface. It's been rebubbling every 20 years since forever of, of people reminding ourselves that we should do this work. What have you seen, have you seen in the development world, what has it been like? That's such a general question, but what has it been like kind of with those two things happening with a pandemic happening and also a lot of this diversity talk happening at the same time have those intersected at all in your work that's an interesting question i would say tangentially yes you know in my work here at the pops um not as much um one of the things uh that's happened the testatura network um created a pilot program called the early career development program um where uh people of color who wish to work in the arts can apply and they will get um, the program, I think is eight weeks of Tessitura learning. And then they also get mentorship. And um, I was a mentor in the pilot program and I'm a mentor again in the second round of the program. And it's sort of split into two sections, um, sales and development, because that's what Tessitura does. It, you know, it mm -hmm. keeps track of sales and development. And so I have, uh, have twice now had these groups of six mentees um, who are all so brilliant and who are going to set our industry on fire uh, because they have such passion and they have so many great ideas. One of the things that I, I learned, and this is this will answer your question about sort of the intersection of this, many of them have been or had been denied jobs because they didn't have experience in Tessitura. The, the way this connects is because these students don't often have the opportunity to intern somewhere that uses Tessitura to do an unpaid internship mm -hmm. where they can then say, I have Tessitura experience and I can put that on my resume. Yeah, just really and so I Yes. Sorry for our, for our listeners. Just tell us a little bit about exactly what Tessitura is. Yes, Tessitura is a software, a CRM, um, a customer relationship man management tool that uh, was created by the Metropolitan Opera. Mm -hmm. And now it is used across the entire world, literally the entire mm -hmm. world, um, by uh, orchestras and theaters and community art centers and uh, playhouses and everything under the sun um, to keep track of donation dollars and uh, sales dollars. And so the network um, kicked off this brand new program here in the United States um, for people of color wishing to work in the arts. Yeah. That's, that's sort of been, um, I guess, the most crucial intersection for me through working, through offering my mentorship, the mentorship that I can offer and the students participating in this program, they then leave with a certificate to say, I know the basics of Tessitura. Yeah. And now they can walk into you know, an interview at any organization that uses Tessitura and say, I have passed square one. There need to be fundraising, the arts in general, but fundraising can be really white and really female dominant. And so it's fantastic that these young people have this opportunity to come and learn this software because this is how we start to change it. Mm -hmm. 
this is how we get these people into the departments so that can, they can start to rise up the ranks and change the way that our organizations look. The cross section between DEI and fundraising is not only about raising money. It's also about changing the way fundraising departments work, changing the way fundraising departments look. Um, and I am thrilled that I've been able to influence that change in a way that's probably different from most others. Because I know, I'm well aware that there are many organizations who are granting dollars for, the, for this sort of work. You know, they're giving you money to bring in a consultant. They're giving you money to go to a conference, you know, all of these things. I'm well aware of that. But I'm doing it in a way that is different from that. And I feel, um, I feel very lucky to do that. Anybody listening to this, please do check out the program. Yeah. They are going to continue doing it. And it is really, really wonderful. And it's free. We love anything that's free 99. That is the <laughs> best price of anything. There's no better price than free. Free 99. I've never heard that. That's, that's I've never heard that. That's so fun. Yeah. And you also, in the middle of that, brought up this really interesting point of nonprofits and getting work in nonprofits usually require internships and experience before you work in the nonprofit, but usually those internships and experience are unpaid. Um, and a lot of people cannot afford to have an unpaid internship. Um, so, you know, I'm really glad that we've been able to at least provide small stipends for our interns. It's not a ton, but it's at least something. So they're not working for nothing. Um, and uh, yeah, that's so cool. I'm really glad that you've been able to do that program. That's, that's really cool. And for anybody interested, we will link, yeah. we'll put a link on our website, on this episode's website. Yeah. Yep. Uh, to if you're interested in checking out this mentorship program with the Tessitura yeah, Network. That's really cool. That's really, really cool. Um, well, I kind of want to ask now, in like as we're, I don't know, halfway through a conversation here, um, and we're talking, I feel like you're, you've just recommended something that people should do, uh, but is there, you know, as people are listening and they're engaging in this conversation and maybe they're thinking about development for the first time, or maybe they're, you know, engaging with something like this for the first time, we're asking all of our guests if they can recommend something to the listeners uh, that you have been finding interesting or engaging or uh, very um, educational um, recently. It can be something related to this. It can also be just be something fun. Uh, but do you have any recommendations for our listeners? I do. Um, I was once somewhere, I don't remember where I was, but I found a book and, um, it was very close, uh, to when I started my job at the chamber orchestra. It was this little tiny book that was no longer than a hundred pages, 150 pages. And it was called don't applaud, send money. Mm. And <laughs> it is, first of all, a great title for a book, yep. but it's this tiny little collection of stories that are sort of like um, case studies mm. about fundraising. And it's just sort of like in Buffalo, they wanted to raise a million dollars, but they didn't have a donor base. And it like tells a story about like something very interesting and cool that they did and they raised the money successfully. Um, but it's this cute little book and it sparked a lot of ideas for me about things that I could do in my own work, but also about things that would not work in my own organization. And um, I just found it to be so charming because it wasn't like a scholastic read, mm -hmm. you know, like I didn't have to sit down and I didn't need a dictionary 
and I didn't need a thesaurus. I could just be like, wow, what an interesting story. Can I implement that where I work? Yes, no, move on to the next one. Um, and so I highly recommend that book. It is such a great book. Um, but when it comes to things to listen to or watch or read, absorb, whatever, I, I always say this to people wanting to work in arts administration. Um, your first job may not be in the medium that you want it to be. It's okay if you want to one day work at an opera house, but your first job is with a dance company. That's really okay. Mm. Nobody is going to be like, wow, you know things about dance? We're not interested in you. <laughs> no, they're going to be like, wow, you know things about dance. There are a lot of operas that have dance in them. So I always encourage people, take in as much as you can about as many um, facets of our industry as you can. Go to a museum, you know, like go listen to some classical music, go listen to some jazz, go to a pop concert, go to a rock concert, you know, go to a science museum. Take in all types of art that you can yeah. because I can't tell you how many times I've been in a, in a conversation with a donor or a sponsor and they've asked me about like some random thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know so much about, it. let's talk about it. Yeah. It makes your job so much easier to have experienced things. Mm -hmm. And if you have the opportunity and the ability to really connect with somebody on a meaningful, in a meaningful way, um, they will support you no matter where you go mm -hmm. because they know that you're good people. They know that you will always have their best interest at heart. And they'll feel like they made something with you that makes them comfortable enough to give you their hard-earned mansion. <laughs> uh, and that's really important. And one of the ways that you can do that is through shared experience. So uh, just a couple more questions here. One of your roles as uh, vice president of external affairs at the Philly Pops is assuredly working with the board and uh, yeah, so we, we've talked a lot in, in multiple different contexts on the podcast about the board, mm -hmm. but what is the board of the Philly Pops like and uh, how can the board work towards the improvement of diversity, equity, inclusion at an organization like the Philly Pops? And and maybe also your, your job title is a little external affairs, right? It's not a traditional job title that we see, I think, in the nonprofit world. Would you mind explaining that a little bit and then the board, how that plays into it? Because it's very interesting. I saw that and I was like, oh, interesting. Absolutely. I love that I get to work with our board. And um, I have the fortune of getting to work with the committees of our board. Um, I get to sit in on committee meetings and prepare the work for committee meetings. So um, that is fascinating because that's where a lot of the work gets done. Uh, board meetings are really sort of about sharing. At the committee level is where you're really sort of doing the nitty gritty work that isn't happening in front of everybody because oftentimes boards are full of incredibly successful people and what are successful people? Busy. busy. <laughs> so it, not only that, they're busy with the thing that is making them able to be on your board. So 
they don't always have the bandwidth and the time to get stuck in the weeds. So you're at a really, really high level. And uh, one of the things that it's taught me is um, for the board, you're reporting up and out, right? They are above me and they are technically, they are in our organization, but they're sort of outside of our organization. And when you're working with your staff, you're sort of reporting um, the staff of your organization sort of like down and in. Um, it's so often that people um, work in nonprofits and they never get up that high. You know, they never get that time with the board. So I'm very lucky to have that. But boards have the opportunity to grow an organization in ways that the staff can't because they know people that the staff just won't be able to get to. And so my job as external affairs, um, vice president of external affairs, um, has a lot to do with what happens outside of the four walls of the POPs office. Lots of stakeholdering, um, and those stakeholders do include the board. They include external sponsors, um, you know, communicating with these people to let them know, here's what we're doing, here's what we have going on, here's what's coming up, because that's really important. I do a lot of governmental work. Very cool. So uh, making sure that the members of city council um, the folks in City Hall are aware of what the POPs is doing. The folks in Harrisburg, you know, the capital of Pennsylvania are aware. The folks in D.C. Yeah. Um, and that includes, you know, fundraising at that level, you know, government gifts, because that's huge. Like that is a large sum of money. And what you have to remember is governmental bodies themselves, at whether it's the city level, the, the federal level, the state level, they all have their own goals that they're trying to achieve you know and so what we're also trying to do is make sure that we are in compliance with those things you know the commonwealth of pennsylvania they want to be supporting diverse organizations so it's our job to be diverse and so so much of my job is filtering external information and distilling it across organization in a way that we can implement what people are trying to do so that we can be the best partner, the best person to support that we can be. Mm. Um, and it's really, really wonderful uh, because it gives me the opportunity to forge relationships. I say the word opportunity a lot because I feel like I have such wonderful opportunities here. And um, it's important to realize that. Back to what I was saying, I operate externally a lot. And I quite like that. Um, and we, you know, with the other vice presidents here, what we have the opportunity to do, I can bring things in. And they're also bringing things in that we discuss together and we sort of, um, what's the word? We set ourselves into motion and we go to work on those things. And with my promotion to vice president of external affairs, I now um, oversee our education programs and our community engagement programs. Um, so previously that was, uh, it's, it remains uh, an independent um, department here in our organization, but now um, I am in charge of it um, strategically and um, sort of on the fundraising side, uh, which is really, really fascinating because now I sort of have this window um, into what we're doing that I can take uh, that I can take to the people who are supporting our organization. 
Um, so you're right. You don't see external affairs very much in the yeah. um, nonprofit space. Um, you see it more often in the for-profit space, and yeah. that was on purpose. And I, I love that. I, because <laughs> you know my role is education and community engagement, and I often mm -hmm. think of my role as if it's it's hard to like put into a box. It's like just out. It's everything external. It's we're, what we're doing out there, and then figuring out how to yep. relate that to what we are as an institution. What do we need to do as an institution to change that? So your job sounds like it would be so helpful <laughs> like, to have someone above to tell me, "Hey, I was talking to a senator yesterday, and this is how they feel about this thing." Or in this town over here, there's this thing that's going like that is very very cool. Um, a little follow up to that with the education and the community engagement being a part of now what you do has that kind of changed your perspective on your work being more involved in the programming side of things or I, I just it being from like the external looking at what you all do what do you look at in your program and think okay this is what we should be doing what do we need to change or you know what is your perspective now on on the program side of things um I, because I went to music school, I always say about music school, you meet every kind of person you will ever meet in your entire life. Because that, that woman who plays the French horn is different from that man who is a percussionist is different from that other guy who's a baritone. Like you meet every kind of person you'll ever meet in your entire life. Yeah. And that is for better or worse. <laughs> I have to tell you. Oh my gosh. That's that the most true statement I've ever heard. <laughs> oh my goodness. So because of that, I've got a really good understanding of the things that I wish I had learned in elementary school or middle school or high school before I got to college. And I now feel like I have an even better grasp um, than I did previously on what is really happening at, in the weeds. It's really important to remember that no matter how high up you get in your organization, you know, sure, you will not be, you won't be working in the weeds. Remember what that's like. You know, remember what it, you know, if you get to the manager level, remember what it was like to be a coordinator or an associate or an assistant. Um, you know, don't forget that because that'll really color the way that you go about dealing with your, the other members of your team in your day to day. Um, and so uh, we just hired a new uh, manager of education and community engagement, and she's wonderful, but in her absence, I was sort of doing her job, sort of, sort of, <laughs> sort of. Um, and I got to see, oh, this is what it's like dealing with principals and teachers in the school district. And uh, somebody needs their instruments. They got, uh, you know, like we rented them and now they don't have them. Where are the instruments? Are they all accounted for? All of these things. So for so long, I was raising the money for it. Um, but I didn't quite know, uh, how's this really, really happening? I had a good idea, but I wasn't doing it. Mm. And so when I started to do it, I was like, ah, ha, 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 understand. So it's changed, um, it's changed the way, not that I look at the programs, but how I look at the way that the programs come to life, the way the programs go from, um, you know, on paper to in the classroom. 
Um, and I think that's equally important yeah. um, to being a good uh, supervisor of the programs. I want to just circle back to the board. Um, we, we covered so many things yeah. in, when you were talking about the board and, and your role as uh, vice president of external affairs. And really, I think you gave the, the best insight of the actual way of board functions that I've ever heard that with the committees yeah. and then reporting to the larger board. It really gave me certainly a wonderful insight. I am curious about the Philly Pops board. Is it a diverse board? And if not, are there efforts to increase the diversity of the board? It is. It's, it's, um, it is uh, like so many other things um, at the Pops, it is a work in progress. And um, there is um, some great diversity on the board, but like so many others, we could always be doing better. Um, and we will, mm -hmm. and we are working on that in real time. We have great diversity in uh, in industry. Mm. Um, I can say that, but I know that that isn't the diversity that everybody wants. Um, and so it will certainly take some time because one of the things about a board is people don't just exist on boards. They're there for terms. Um, they are there for terms that are not open-ended. Um, and you can't just keep adding people to the board. And it's it's sort of very similar to the way that like a CBA works, mm -hmm. you know, like you can't just start adding all these people. People have to rotate off. Then you can add new people. People have, to, we have to make sure that um, the people who we are adding are what we need. You know, if you have 10 bankers on your board and there's a black woman who's a banker, you shouldn't just add her because she's a black woman. That's not good DEI, mm -hmm. right? That's just adding her because you want to increase the, the, the makeup of your board, the physical makeup of your board. And that isn't what you should be doing. So um, it's a work in progress. It's not as great as, um, as maybe some people might like it to be. But I think um, I keep saying it'll get there because I really do believe that because we're working as a team here at the Pops to make it better. And so to say it one more time, it'll get there. Yeah, it will. Well, I, I love your perspective on a lot of things and the energy that you bring to your role and all of the stuff that you all are doing. And I a Philly pops that you, you know, you're not in like necessarily the classical ex exact classical music world. Right. But what you all do, I think, is so interesting. And um, just one little question about pops versus classical, right? Like a lot of classical organizations have a pop series that tends to do way better <laughs> than our classical music series. Um, so existing in a pops organization, how, you know, I, I just, as someone who has classical training, but probably also loves pops music, how do you kind of feel about the, that in the, in the world? Because you work with the League of American Orchestras, so I know you have contact with people from all over the country about this very topic, and probably a lot of development people in the strictly classical organizations feel a little bit of this, I wish people loved classical as much as they love the pops. Um, so kind of, I know that's open-ended, but the perspective on this whole pops versus classical argument, that's not the right word, but the fact that there is kind of a, a divide, it seems. 
there are people who believe that what we do here at the Philly Pops is commercial. I don't think of it that way. I think of what we do as accessible. We may be the only orchestra that somebody ever sees in their entire life. Did they still go to the orchestra? Yes. But did they hear Bach or Tchaikovsky? No, they heard Elton John. And that's still okay because they still went to the orchestra. And we don't know that them coming to see us means that they won't now go to the ballet or to the to see the Philadelphia Orchestra or the Chamber Orchestra or the opera. We don't know that. I think of our organization as a way in to other organizations. If people are so interested, um, yes, Pops often does better than you know the regular classical music. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Pops is often playing the something of somebody's life. You know, they're playing the soundtrack to somebody's life. They might be playing their wedding song, the song from their family reunion, the song they listen to every year at the holidays, or their, it's their favorite movie that the symphony is playing with, right? So it's easier to more quickly identify and connect to that music than it might be to Beethoven's Nine, which we love. We love, absolutely, <laughs> right? But Mary walking down the street might not love, you know? So I get it. it it's very tough, but I'm glad that orchestras are having a pop series. I'm glad they're doing it because it's still a great way to bring people in yeah. to see some art, you know? And maybe it's not the high art that people want, but it's still some art. You know, you still had a butt in a seat. You never know. Somebody might want to say, I love that. I want more of that. I support that. Now, that's why the granting community exists. You know, that's why there are so many organizations that support classical music, because they want to see a continuation of this art form. There will always be this art form. Um, and you're right, it is sort of an argument. Uh, it, it certainly is. I don't think that people are, um, some people don't love it. They don't even like that it exists. They think it's like swill. Um, but I think it's important because you never know where it can take you. And it's a great way in with children. Yes. It's a really, really wonderful way in with children because, um, you know, to be able to play um, a chart that we distilled from Phil Collins into a violin part, mm -hmm. you know, eventually there's going to be a student who starts there and they, they're like, I get this. What's harder? We know what's harder. Mozart, go, right? <laughs> it's it's yeah. a way in, you know, it's a way in for older people. It's a way in for younger people. And if we shift our focus to see it that way, yeah. not as a way of killing classical music, but as a way into classical music, I think that'll change the outlook for a lot of people. I love that. I love that. And I think it's important for there. It's not like one is better than the other. And I think a lot of like, old school classical music people think that like the pop series like dilutes somehow yes. what we do which is not mm -hmm. i mean i mean we were just talking about lady gaga <laughs> that would be pops and she's amazing so I, she had 30 I, pieces on stage oh there were strings on stage yeah. she had a traditional jazz orchestra I love so it. 
What are we going to do? I love that. I think that's great. I love that. So my perspective on this has always been that, especially when you have an orchestra where the same orchestra, this is different, obviously, than how it works in Philadelphia, but in a place like Canton, where our orchestra, the Canton Symphony Orchestra, has a Masterworks and a Pop Series. And really, what I look at it as more of this community appreciates that their community has an orchestra. Yeah. And as you said, they're going to be a butt in a seat. They're going to be a donation check that we would not have otherwise yeah. gotten. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our pop series is, is very successful oh, yeah. and extremely profitable. Queen and was sold out. <laughs> sold out a month before the concert. Yeah, it was crazy. Well, it all, you know, when it goes back to, um, for there, for not even for better, for worse, just for worse, um, classes can be really elitist. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason that there are people who feel like it dilutes what the, you know, what the orchestra is doing is because it brings in a different kind of people. It brings in a kind of person who is not the regular masterworks, classical music, canon person, right? Like the same, are there people who want to see Mozart and watch Jurassic Park with symphony orchestra? Yes, there absolutely are, but they're not all the same people. Yeah. There are new people who are going to come into this and they might not be the kind of person who you want to see sitting to you in box 29. <laughs> wow. Uh, to that, yeah. I say too bad. Wear your jeans to the classical concerts, please. You're do whatever you want. Absolutely. I would love to Absolutely. have a slightly, I would, if we had like one concert that was like the rowdy classical where you're allowed to like hoot and holler while they're playing, I think that would be a, an experiment to see what would even happen if we said, hey, if you like something, just cheer really loud and see what happens in a classical music setting. How wild. Absolutely. <laughs> Matthew That's hates, Ma as a conductor, Matthew it's hates. It's hard for me to imagine <laughs> what that would be like. We'll call but, it a social experiment. There you go. Oh man. Oh, that's, I love that. I love that perspective. Well, Joshua, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Before we let you go, we want to ask you the question we ask everybody at the end of the podcast episode. How do we orchestrate change? How do we orchestrate change? I think we orchestrate change in so many ways, really. Um, but the, the way that I would... Um, the one that comes to you know the top of my mind is something I said earlier and that we've got to make sure that the things our offerings I will just say as a very broad term our offerings our offerings and our teams whether that be the staff the musicians the board are diverse we orchestrate change through making sure that people can see some semblance of themselves and what we are putting out to the masses. It doesn't mean that um, we have to only program pops. It doesn't mean that everybody who works on staff needs to be um, of color or LGBTQIA+. It doesn't mean either of those things. It just means that people see some reflection of the world in this little microcosm that we call the orchestra community. That's how we orchestrate change in our industry and really in any industry. 
you know, how can we be making things for people if there's nobody involved who look like those people or who are, you know, who have experience, you know, great experience in that community? How can we, you know, we can't do that. Then it's not honest yeah, and it's not real and it's not truly reflective. And so we orchestrate change by increasing, um, I hate to say increasing diversity, but that's what it is, right? That's really what it is. You know, people need to be seen. Everybody wants to be seen today. Um, I think that's, if, if we've learned anything in the last 18 months, through all the highs and the lows, I think people just want to be seen and they want to be heard. And so we orchestrate change by making sure that we do that for people on the whole spectrum, no matter where they fall. Joshua, thank you so, so much for being with us today. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. I had such a wonderful time. And, uh, you know, it's nice to talk about sort of the bigger picture issues um, because I think sometimes people are a little afraid of that. They don't really want to have that dialogue because then it means they have to do something about it. Like, bum, bum, bum. <laughs> like, oh, I talked about this. Now I got to do something about it. But that um, doesn't have to be so scary. You know, it's okay to talk about these things because you have to start the conversation somewhere. Yeah. And I'm happy that you all are doing it. Yeah. Joshua Thomas, Vice President of External Affairs at the Philly Pops. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time.